Last week, we started on our study in the book of Daniel, and we started by not delving into the book of Daniel, but by doing some foundational thoughts and, and discussion. And today is going to be similar. We're going to continue in some foundational matters because I want you to understand that while the book of Daniel may have been written some 2,600 years ago, it is relevant to our lives today. As we took a look at last time, we are, as believers, strangers and aliens in a foreign land. And that this world is not our home. And that we should not expect to be loved by it. Because if we followed what they were doing, then they'd love us. But if we're following Jesus, they won't. And today, I want to take a look at uh, something that kind of, in all practical theology, messes us up. In, in our world, everything seems to be relative. And they make everything relative when, in fact, only some things are relative and there are things that are absolute. So, for instance, a thing that is relative. The beauty is in the eye of the beholder. You will see some people who just think their person that they're just in love or in lust with is just beautiful and you go, I don't see what they see. There is that sense of, Beauty is skin deep, but ugly goes to the bone. You know, there is what we kind of take a look at. But then, what is not relative, but then some people tend to make it, is the attributes of God. We tend to superimpose upon the Lord our God attributes that don't necessarily apply to Him. Oftentimes, we kind of take our concept of who God is by who our father or dad was. If our dad was authoritarian, then we tend to think God is an authoritarian. If our dad was just a whatever you want, you can have kind of dad, or he was absent, or whatever, we kind of superimpose upon God those types of things. And we tend to look at God with the two Ps. P number one is punisher. That when I do something wrong, God's going to punish me. And we let that creep into our thinking, and I'll show you kind of how it does. You're driving down the road and you get a flat tire. Oftentimes our first thought is, well, what, why did God do that to me? Well, it may be that you ran over a nail. And it's as spiritual as that. Or it could be that God says, you got a bald tire, and if I don't flatten it, you're going to kill yourself on the freeway. So I'm going to flatten it now. But we all kind of say, God did something to me when something bad happened because He's punishing me for something. The other kind of concept we have of God is that He's permissive. I can just say I'm sorry and everything's okay. God wants what I want, and everything I want, God wants. God wants me to be happy, and if these things make me happy, then obviously that's what God wants for me. 
and we view God as being permissive. Neither of those things are God. Today's sermon title is that God corrects His people. But that's not the word I'm going to use and I'm going to hold off on the true word for what God deals with His people. But what I want to do is in our foundational uh, approach to Daniel is to give you a history lesson of God's people. And I'm a student of history. I like to read history books and and whatever. Uh, I definitely subscribe to the saying that says, those who do not know and understand history are condemned to repeat it. And the history of God's people are something that we should not want to repeat. So the history of God's people is this, that God comes to this man and says, I want you to, to go to a land I'm going to show you and I'm going to give it to you. And in faith that man goes and we call him Abram. And God has him walk around the land and says, I'm going to give this to you. And this man goes, yeah, but what does it matter to me because I don't have any children and so what if you give it to me? And God promises him a son and promises that if he can count the stars in the sky or the sands on the sea, that he could then number his descendants. But God says, I'm going to wait to give you this land for two reasons. Reason number one, the people who now possess the land, their iniquity hasn't yet fully ripened. You see, God is fair even to the unbeliever. And then he also says, if I give you this land, you're just one person. You're not going to be able to hold and occupy the land. Therefore, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send your family to a distant land called Egypt. And there you're going to go from a family to a nation family. And you're going to come out and I'm going to deliver your people in powerful ways. And after 400 years, he does so. And no sooner does, do the people get out of the land out of, after they're crying out of being enslaved, their immediate response to the first difficulty is, weren't there graves in Egypt? Oh, it was so much better in the good old days when they were complaining about being enslaved and all that other stuff. But it was much better to be there than to be here. And God provided for His people and provided for His people. And then Moses goes to the mountaintop to receive the laws. And at that time, the people again decide that they're going to worship another God and create one and throw a party. And God deals with them. He gives them the law. And they make a promise and a covenant that says, we'll follow the law. And God goes, here are the blessings if you do and here are the curses if you don't. They go, Great, we'll follow it. Now, as I say that, I want you to understand that there are some people, because I've right now been talking about the Old Testament, is that they say the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. Wrong. They are the same God. In the Old Testament, it was testified It is your kindness, O God, that leads us to repentance. It is His mercy in the New Testament that leads us to repentance. As we will see by the history of God's people, He is merciful and forgiving and patient, just as the God of the New Testament is. And the God of the New Testament also has wrath and judgment, just as the God of the Old Testament. So there are not two gods. 
they are consistent throughout the Scriptures. But God says after them saying, okay, we make this agreement, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 58, it says this, If you are not careful to observe all the words of this law, which are written in this book, to fear this honored and awesome name, the Lord your God. Then he tells them a few things. And then in 64, he says this, Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth, and there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, which you or your fathers have not known. God says, we're making a covenant, we're making a contract. You fulfill it, and I will bless you with innumerable blessings. If you don't fulfill it, then there will be cursings, and you will lose the promised land. But He gives them this hope in Deuteronomy chapter 30. It says this, So it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, and the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and soul according to all that I have commanded you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there He will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it, and He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. God says, I'm going to correct you. I am going to judge you if you follow, if you break our covenant. But there is a promise if you return to Me with all your heart and all your soul and all your might then it doesn't matter where you end up. You'll be back in the land. And it doesn't matter how devastated you might be that I am going to bless you with greater blessings than I even gave your father. So God says, here are the guidelines of what you're to do. And if you fail, I will correct you. But when you return to me, the blessings will be restored. It isn't as if, well, you blew it, I'm done with you. God tells them that He is going to forgive and going to restore their relationship, not the way it was, but even better than it was. So the people go, great. And they go to the land and they drive out most, but not all of the people in the land. And they allow those to stay there. And while because those foreigners have stayed there, they create problems for the people in the land. And when they get away from God, God allows them to intimidate them and to uh, be rulers over them. But then when they turn, He sends judges to free His people. He does that over and over and over throughout the book of Judges. And then they say, we don't want God to be our king. We want to be like everybody else. We want our own king. And Samuel is hurt because he thinks they're rejecting him. And God goes, don't take it personal, they're rejecting me. They want what everybody else has. And you know, that's the same way we are today. One of the reasons, and I won't say the name, but one of the reasons a particular brand of phone is popular 
Because there's a particular brand of phone that some people you like have, and therefore you want that particular brand of phone. And even if somebody was going to give you a different brand of phone, you say, no, thank you, because I want that brand of phone. Because we want to do what everybody else does. It's just human nature. So God gives them a king, and the kings mess up. And they mess up so bad that God sends prophets to them to warn them and to tell them what He's going to do. So we find in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, it says this, Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days you would not believe it if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. God's saying, there's going to be this group of people called the Chaldeans that you don't think are going to be that powerful because they're just small right now. I'm raising them up to take you out. And I'm telling you, and you still won't believe it. In Jeremiah, the prophet says this, in Jeremiah 11, verse 13 through 16, For your gods are as many as your cities, O Judah, and as many as the streets of Jerusalem are the altars you have set up to the shameful things, altars to burn incense to Baal. Therefore, do not pray for this people, nor lift up a cry or prayer for them, for I will not listen when they call to me because of their disaster. When they start seeing the results of what I'm doing, they're going to cry out to me. Jeremiah, don't bother praying for them because I'm not listening and I'm not going to listen to them. To me, some of the saddest words in the Scriptures. What right has my beloved in my house when she has done many vile deeds? Can the sacrificial flesh take away from you your disaster so that you can rejoice? The Lord called your name a green olive tree, beautiful in fruit and form. With the noise of a great tumult, he has kindled fire on it, and its branches are worthless. God is saying, she was my beloved. She was like a bride. She's my wife, if you will. She was beautiful. But your sacrificial system will do you no good. It's going to be raised with fire. And these are God's prophets. Now we're going to go into a little longer history lesson, if you will. And it's found in Kings, 2 Kings chapter 23. And we're going to go several chapters. It says this, starting with verse 34. Pharaoh Necho, named Elikim, son of Josiah, king in the place of Josiah his father, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. But he took Jehoaz away and brought him to Egypt, and he died there. So Jehoiakim gave the silver and gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land in order to give the money at the command of Pharaoh. He exacted the silver and gold from the people of the land, each according to his valuation, to give it to Pharaoh Necho. And Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Zebedah, the daughter of Pediah of Rumah. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. One of the, this is towards the end, if you will, of the kingdom. And this is a phrase that is over and over and over. And he did evil in the sight of 
of the Lord. Now what's going on here is Israel, Judah, became a vassal state of Egypt. And in order to maintain his power that was given to him by Egypt, he has to pay tribute to Egypt. And the prophets inform, advise, and recommend to the king that they not look to Egypt as their savior. But that's exactly what the king does. He thinks that Egypt will save him. And he's giving this tribute to Egypt because they're a vassal state wanting that protection even though God has said, don't do that. And even though at this point it may seem reasonable because Egypt at, to this point was a world power, a superpower. But God says, don't depend on chariots or the soldiers or princes. And so instead of relying on God, he continues to rely on Egypt. And then it says in verse 1 of the next chapter, In his days Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him bands of Chaldeans, bands of Armenians, bands of Moabites, bands of Ammonites, so that he sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through his servants the prophets. Surely at the command of the Lord it came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh according to all that he had done and also for the innocent blood which he shed for he lived filled Jerusalem with innocent blood and the Lord would not forgive. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and all that he did are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers and Jehoiachin his son became king in his place. And so what we see is Nebuchadnezzar comes and displaces Jehoiakim, renames a new king, and, we're, and that is that first context that we're now going to be talking about in Daniel. But to see the full situation, it's going to go on. And then it says, The king of Egypt did not come out of his land, for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. So basically, Babylon, because God had ordained it, now is the superpower, and Egypt is, is just a minor player. They can't protect them. Nebuchadnezzar as king is the superpower. And Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Nehatsup, the daughter of El Nathan of Jerusalem. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. And at that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, went up to Jerusalem, and the city came under siege. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon, he and his mother and his servants and his captains and his officials. So the king of Babylon took him captive in the eighth year of his reign. And he carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces the vessels of gold which Solomon king of Israel had made in the temple of the Lord, just as the Lord had said. And then he led away into exile all Jerusalem and all the captains and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all that the craftsmen and the smiths 
None remained except the poorest people of the land. So the, he led Jehoiakim away into exile into Babylon. Also the king's mother and the king's wives and his officials and the leading men of the land. He led them away into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. All the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the smiths, 1,000, all, all strong and fit for war. And these the king of Babylon brought into exile to Babylon. So this is now the second exile, if you will. Nebuchadnezzar goes, besieges Jerusalem, has victory, but is called back to his homeland. So he leaves. Then the king decides to rebel, comes back with more force. In Daniel we see that there's a small amount of people who are led captive. In this, they're all the mighty. You say, okay, you want to go to war? I'm taking all the strong people out. Verse 27, or uh, I'm sorry, 17. Then the king of Babylon made his uncle Mattiah king in his place and changed his name to Jedediah. And Jedekiah was 21 years old, and when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Hamatul, and the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For through the anger of the Lord this came about in Jerusalem and Judea, until he cast them out of his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So again, we have this sense of we're going to rebel. God is the one who's determined the fate of Jerusalem and Judah, and yet the kings continue to do evil in the sight, and they rebel. And it says, In the ninth year of his reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came, he and all of his army against Jerusalem, and camped against it, and built a siege wall around it. So the city was under siege until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then the city was broken in two, and all the men of war led, fled by night away from the gate between the two walls besides the king's garden. Through the Chaldeans were all around the city, and they went by way of Arabah. Without reading, basically what happens is the Chaldeans follow, capture them, Wipe them out. And it says that they slaughtered the daughters and the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put his eyes out and bound him with bronze fetters and took him to Babylon. And then they had the final exile where they took even more people, broke down the walls, burned the city, and left those who were the poorest. So that is the context of where we are in Daniel. Daniel is one of the first exiles into the land. And so in Daniel 1, 1 it says this, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. 
Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring to him some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom there was no defect, and were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and asserting knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered them to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So the king in his first, Nebuchadnezzar's in his first exile, takes the best and the brightest to Babylon with him. And Daniel is one of those people. Now, as we read the book of Daniel, we're going to notice several things. One of them is the Scriptures never have a negative thing to say about Daniel. Now, there are times when it'll talk about so-and-so walked with God and was no more. And we have like one verse. And then maybe another where we have a priest who comes and offers an offering and, and Abraham makes an offering and we just see a short... But almost every time there's any lengthy discussion about a person in the Scriptures, we usually see them warts and all. Not so in Daniel. Now, Daniel was not perfect. But I suspect Daniel didn't deserve what God was doing to his people. But guess what? Daniel lived with God's people. And therefore, sometimes God deals with a group as a group. And so you might say, well, wait a minute, I didn't do anything wrong. Excellent. But so what, what about the people you're hanging out with? The second thing I want you to understand is that as we have seen, God warned them, God told them what the consequences would be, and whatever. But God is not the God who's the punisher, and God is not the God of permission. He's a different God. And it's something that I want you to understand. And so we're going to take a look at a New Testament writing from the writer of the book of Hebrews who's going to write and incorporate in his writing part of an Old Testament passage. But he says this, Therefore, in chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. He's saying, in chapter 11, we mentioned all of these roll call of faith and all these men and women who were faithful. And because of that, and others think because of they're watching us and that's all whatever, because of that, let us lay aside every encumbrance. Now, the encumbrance is not just necessarily sin. It may be things that are valuable in your life, but get in a way with your believing life. 
I love watching football. And football is finally, the preseason is finally here. And there's nothing wrong with watching football unless I allow it to entangle my life to distract me from the things that I ought to be doing, like being a husband and a father and a grandfather and a pastor and a brother to believers. I need to lay aside those things that can easily entangle us and to encumber us when you are preparing for the race. Oftentimes people, or I'll use another sporting event, you'll see a batter in baseball. Oftentimes they will put a heavy weight on the bat. And while they're practicing their swings before they're up at bat, they have this heavy weight and they swing the bat. But you notice every single one, when he goes up to the plate, takes the weight off. He doesn't bat with the weight. But we seem to live our lives that way. We have these weights, and then when it's time for us to run the race or to be up at bat, we allow the weight to remain. No wonder we're not effective. Then he says, and also the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. There's the secret. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter of faith. He's the one who wrote faith. He's the one who perfects it in our lives who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. What a strange combination. For the joy set before Him. You wouldn't think what He endured would be joyful. But because He was obedient to God, and because it would benefit you and me, He did so not begrudgingly, not tearfully, but He did so with joy. Endured the cross despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of, of the throne of God. For consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. He's saying, when you're having difficulty, when the world hates you, when the world is persecuting, and nothing seems to go right, He says, think about Jesus. What did Jesus go through? And did Jesus tell us that we're not above Him? Consider that. And whatever persecution that we go through is nothing in comparison for what He went through. For even if I were to die on the cross as He did, I would not be dying for your sins and mine. But He did. And then he says this, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. When you're, stri- when you're trying to avoid sin, when you're trying to re- not be entangled, have you sweat drops of blood? I don't think so. When you get to that point, then there's something to talk about. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are not when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. That's what God does. God doesn't punish his children. He doesn't 
isn't permissive with his children. He disciplines them. Which is where we get the term disciple. You are disciplined so that you might do the thing. When you are in the military, you discipline your body to be able to go through the hardships that are entailed in fighting in war. When you are a student and you're studying, you discipline yourself to study at the appropriate times so that you might gain knowledge and wisdom. But let's face it, most of us just want to pass the test. But we're not disciplined. And so God's saying, I am disciplining you so that you become who you are. And that's the difference between God the Father and so many parents. So many parents want to punish their kids or permit it. I love the expression, well, they're only four. Well, they're only five. They're only 35. They're only 40. They're only whatever. Here's the key. If your four-year-old doesn't know which investment is the best investment, it's because they're only four. If they say, no, I'm not doing that, I suspect they know exactly what they're doing. And it's not because they're only four. But what we as permissive parents say, well, only four. Then only 14. Then only 24. Then only 44. And we're always permissive. And therefore, the children never become disciplined. And instead of being like Jesus, they become the worst form of who they are. And yet a lot of parents who aren't permissive go to the other extreme and it's punishment and they're angry and how dare you do that and I'm going to beat you or whatever it is and I'm going to take away all your toys for six months and we make all of these things to punish. And that doesn't accomplish anything either except resentment. We, to be parents, are to be like our Father. It's discipline. So, the next time you have a flat tire, don't think, well, God's punishing me. If it has something to do with spirituality, God, what did, where, where have I gone a little wrong that I might get back, that I might go be corrected? Verse 7, It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? See, let's take a look at the earthly matters. Earthly parents, especially fathers, discipline their children. And we don't discipline other people's children, even though we may want to. Oftentimes you're at a restaurant and a kid's running amok, and you would love to just beat the kid within an inch of his life and push him a foot. But... That's not what we do, because they're not ours. We hope that the parent figures it out. But we discipline ours. Oftentimes, what happens, we overreact. Because that kid's running amok, we then overreact on our kid when our kid's been fine. And I'm a personal example of that. I remember a number of times my mom would say, back then I was called Gary, because that was my middle name, Gary, behave. Finally, I go, I'm not doing anything. And her response was, well, I hope if I said something to you that their parents would fix them. But I'm tired of getting in trouble. I didn't do anything. But we correct and discipline. And so 
here is a spiritual lesson here, okay? If it's your children you discipline, but if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. The Scripture says if God doesn't discipline you, if God doesn't correct you, guess what? You're not His. I have this little shorthand. It says this. If you are a child of God and you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, you're in trouble. And if you're not a child of God and you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, you're in bigger trouble. Because God is going to discipline you when you're His. But if He leaves you alone, that's scary because you're not His. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? He's saying, if your Father cared enough to discipline you, not punish you, not be permissive, but to discipline you so that you might be that wonderful person God has intended you to be, and you respected Him for it, why not respect God who knows how to discipline? You see, I understood I had two children and they were very different. And my discipline on one was different than my discipline on the other. I used to say with my son, I had to take a two... This is figurative... In this world, I get arrested. Figurative. Figuratively, I said I would have to take a two-by-four and hit my son in the, in the face to get his attention. Figurative. I never did it. But with my daughter, all I had to say is her name, and she's going, Dad's yelling at me. I wouldn't treat my daughter the way I did my son because they were different. And if I was smart enough to figure that out, now I'm not smart enough, you know, I, I did a lot of failures and, and whatever. But if I was smart enough to figure that out, guess how smart God is to know exactly how to discipline us. Not to punish us, not to give us permission, but to correct us so that we might be His children. For they discipline us for a short time as seemed best to them. Again, it's the best they could do. I, that's, that's what, that's what I, the knowledge I had. But He disciplines us for our good. He doesn't discipline us because it makes him happy. He doesn't discipline us because somehow he says, see, I'm God and you're not. He disciplines us that we might be better for our good. So that we may share his holiness. All discipline for a moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. And yet those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields peaceful fruit of righteousness. He's going... The writer said, I understand when God's disciplining you, it's like when your, your parent does to somebody else. It's not fun. If you're told you can't watch TV for a month, or you can't be on your phone, or you can't do whatever, it's not fun. But it's a short time. You know, in the same way, when God disciplines, yeah, it's not going to be fun. But it is going to result in holiness and peaceful fruit of righteousness. God has a purpose in His discipline. All too often, parents, their purpose is because they're angry, because things didn't work out the way they want, or whatever, they punish. 
But God doesn't punish His children. He corrects them. He disciplines them for their good. So, God has taken His people and He has told them, you have so many gods you're following which violate the first two commands of the Ten Commandments. I mean, they don't have to get into the 629th law. They can't even follow the first two. And he goes, you've got so many gods that you're worshiping. Wait till you go to exile. You're going to even come up with new ones. But there will be a time when you'll be restored. And even in the correction and discipline, God promises relief and restoration. And when we go through that discipline of God, we know that we're His children. We know that it is for our good. And we know that there will come restoration and fellowship and blessings far greater than before. So our response to God is not to say, oh, I'm afraid to do something because He might beat me. Or I can do anything I want because He will forgive me anyway. But to understand that He will correct us. That He will discipline us. Just as He did the nation. And He is sovereign over not only Judah, but the whole world. He is sovereign over over the life of Daniel and his friends and the lives of you and me. And just as he was aware of Daniel and his friends, he's aware of you as his children. So, when something bad happens, and it does have a spiritual impact, it's not you ran over a nail, you can be thankful that you are a child of God and He cares enough to discipline you. And just as I thought it was unfair when my mother would call me out when I did nothing wrong, sometimes the people of God go into captivity because everybody else messed up. But what will be interesting to see in the life of Daniel and his friends, he doesn't resent his people. Instead, he does far more good for his people. So next time, we will take a look at the actual book of Daniel and go from there and to learn that God is sovereign over nations and individuals. That God will walk with us while we are in a foreign land as aliens and strangers. And that prayer does have its benefits. A book written over 2,600 years ago is very, very, very relevant to your life and to mine. And all God's people said. So we're going to sing in just a moment after I pray. A good, good father. Because that's exactly who God is. He's not just a good, good father. He's a great, great father. Because he knows us. And he knows the hairs on our head. And he knows 
are rising up and are setting down. And He knows how to accomplish in our lives what He wants to accomplish. Praise God for that.